Hello and welcome to In Conversation, a DubLab podcast where each week we will bring you interviews from the DubLab radio archives. Hi, this is Diana from LA Record, and you're listening to DubLab, and we're here with Tina Weymouth. And Chris France from Tom Tom Club. It seems that Tom Tom Club's songs are never are always kind of empowering for for women and um, and non sterile ways of of nurturing yourself. Both being two separate things that sometimes come together. Yeah, I'd say that we're we're both uh, feminist and masculinist. Meaning, meaning we're on both sides of the gender. You know. Um, and and every and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Should men still open doors? Oh, I think that's a lovely tradition, and I think that women should open doors for men when they're carrying loads. Oh, but the men carry the loads. Sometimes, you know, if you're if you happen to be, or or if you're a woman and you happen to be helping a. Um, someone who's got a baby in a stroller, you know, getting through the subway doors or getting up the, the staircase. It's just sort of the automatic thing that the people with a free hand are going to help the people who have a lot to carry. Well, at least they should. Well, yeah. you'd yeah. think so. I remember my mother, who was French, and she came over here in the you know, uh, at the beginning, when France fell to the Nazis, she had just married my father, and she was not allowed to re-enter France. And um, so she she came over to the United States, and she was she got very pregnant, and she had a, then she had another baby, and she she remembered always having to ride a train down to New York, and that not that she was carrying one baby in, in her arms and she, had, she was very pregnant with another baby and not one soul gave her a seat. She had to travel like, like four hours standing up. That's the bystander effect. That's, yeah. You, wouldn't, you don't normally see that in New York today. I mean, I remember when we first moved to New York, I was terrified of very shy. And, um, but I... You know, riding the subways and living in New York really helped me to overcome my shyness a great deal because always you'd see the, the poorest people reaching into their pockets to help those even more needy than themselves. They never hesitated. And, and we were so shocked once when, um, I think it was the um, rock and roll, um, what are they called, the, 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 that cafe that... Restaurant, Chris. Oh, the Hard Rock. Cafe? Oh, the Hard Rock mm-hmm. Cafe. There, there's so many imitations now that I didn't remember the first one. <laughs> the Hard Rock Cafe asked us to donate instruments because they have instruments that they then send around to. They have them up for a year in one rock and roll. Um, hard Rock. Hard Rock Cafe, and then they send them to another Hard Rock Cafe in London or Paris or Rome. And they asked us to donate instruments, and of course, you know we. It wasn't as if we had a lot of instruments. So we asked them, well, we will do that in condition that, you know, in exchange you'll give, um, you know, some money to a charity of our choice. And so we chose um, Meals on Wheels, which is a, a really, really fantastic charity. And 
they sent us a letter. It was a very small amount of money, you know, just a couple, three, four thousand dollars. And they said, do you realize that your contribution was the single biggest contribution we had all year? And it was just sort of mind-boggling. That was the whole sort of Reaganomics, the trickle-down effect. It's like just, you know, you know, charity doesn't count, you know. And it's still kind of out there as, um, as a concept that uh, I, I find, uh, frankly, not in the American spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, you've, you seem to be very like, you're almost like a, an encyclopedia of experiences that you, that you can draw out. Having witnessed so much, and it seems to be very aware of, of the things that, that happen and the things that have significance, do you find that like what you have done has made an impact that that can count? Um, are you are you referring to the band Tom yeah. Tom Club? I think so. I think we um, when we came along, things were getting kind of dreary and and overly serious. I think. Um, uh, not that we aren't serious at times, but I'm referring to bands like. Well, our own band was in a very serious time. Our other band, Talking Heads, and um, there were bands like Joy Division and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, good bands, of course, but and interesting, but kind of like really serious and not not exactly uh, the kind of the kind of band that you want to listen to 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 have a good time you know no, chris used so, to call it music to slit your wrist <laughs> so, yeah, right. so so we um we thought we would try to be a little bit more uh transport our listeners to a more pleasant and agreeable sort of party atmosphere mm-hmm. well it, it was dance music you know we, we just wanted to keep it light and not not i te- have a tendency to go to the dark side naturally and and Chris is just always trying to pull me over to the other side, and and so this was a very deliberate attempt to cheer ourselves up. But I th- I think in doing that, we sort of brought brought art music to the dance floor in a way that um, maybe other bands hadn't done yet. And and we we always believe that dance music had uh, some of the most interesting and progressive and uh, Exciting production techniques. Yeah, such as Kraftwerk or Giorgio Moroder. Yeah, yes. the production uh, possibilities of yes. electronics. Absolutely. I mean, yes. they, they pioneered and, amazing things. And uh, reggae dub music, also, you know. And Zap. Um, Lee Perry, Parliament Funkadelic, all mm-hmm. that. So we, uh, we, we chose to, to uh, try to go in that direction. Uh, and as opposed to a more serious kind of Anglo-Saxon thing. Right. And um, I think that a lot of people, uh, uh, well, they say they were surprised with the success of our first record. We weren't that surprised by it. We were happy about it. But, you know, we knew that we were capable of driving a good record, um, as we had done with our other band, Talking Heads. So... We weren't exactly surprised, but we we did notice that a lot of people kind of followed suit, and and I noticed that in in 
what we call black music, R&B music, vocals tended to change to be more like a Tom Tom Club style of vocal than what had gone before, which was basically Aretha Franklin, Chaka Khan, Patti LaBelle, you know, that kind of diva thing. Which they do beautifully, right? but the imitators made it just awful. I mean, if you listen to Beyonce or even Lady Gaga, I think you hear more Tom Tom Club than you hear Chaka Khan. If you catch my drift. I think I catch your drift. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about that. One is that, you know, you guys came around in a time where it was kind of like um, Jamaica's influence had kind of been in the U.K. and in the U.S. now for a couple years. Um, and that was influencing club culture, music performance style, parties, like everything. And you... Um, were sort of a little bit more intimately aligned with that sort of thing. What first took you to Jamaica? I mean, Talking Heads recordings, but why? Well, actually, that was Bahamas because Jamaica was way too dangerous at the oh, time. Oh, Bahamas, right. Yeah, we had the, there were the problems between, you know, the, the CIA supported Siaga government and um, Bl- Chris Blackwell moved his studio. He gave t- Tough Gong, he'd given it to Bob Marley, and we actually started in 78 with Talking Heads at his new studio, Compass Point. And um, he was he was which inter- was in the Bahamas in the Bahamas exactly yeah. and and we were um, and Jimmy Cliff had moved to the Bahamas and we were in he wanted to Chris Blackwell wanted to start a kind of an artist uh, community and we said we volunteered we said mm-hmm. absolutely that would be fascinating Robert Palmer was there Wally Badaru was there all of the people who were working with Grace Jones on the nightclubbing Sly and uh, Robbie. Uh, Everybody was there, and and um, we thought this is this is a wonderful environment in which to get a lot of work done. There's there's not a lot of partying. There's just a lot of um, well, if if there was partying, it was always about music. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always um, and and what can we do in collaboration? And and so um, there it was. It was not until after we did the first Tom Tom Club album that we visited Jamaica for the first time and it was fascinating I mean we, we loved it, we went to Lee Perry's studio um, we went to see the Tough Gong and the uh, studio And but by the time that was so sad because that was 1981 and that was the, after Bob Marley had died mm-hmm. so um, there, was a, there was a sense of, of things having already Culminated, although it continues now with you know since then with dance hall and we worked with a wonderful young um, engineer Stephen Stanley who we actually made our co-producer. Um, he was at Compass Point Studios and we'd known him since he was 19, and he's still every just about every great hit coming out of um, Jamaica is one that's had to pass through his uh, magic mix hands. Mm-hmm. How long do you have to spend in the Caribbean before it seeps into you? Oh, I think it was seeping into us since we were little kids because, you know, we had on the on mainstream radio, um, there was such a variety back back in the day. Even with AM radio, we had, uh, you know, the Israelites and uh, Chris Blackwell had already released, you know, My Boy Lollipop and 
Um, well, both of our parents had collections of calypso. A lot too. of calypso. You know, 78 of Harry Belafonte and... Uh, the Duke, Mighty Sparrow and... Duke, whatever his name was. And, you know, we... we um, as well as jazz and American blues, so... I think we both enjoyed uh, calypso music. And then, and then uh, when we were at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, this movie, The Harder They Come, came out. And uh, we saw that movie, and we bought the soundtrack, and we just, like, listened to it over and over. And then uh, the first Whalers album in the United States was released, Catch a Fire, and we got into that. And... Um, at the same time, we were listening to Roxy Music and Brian Eno and David Bowie and Lou Reed and Al Green. You know, it was a, <laughs> a melange. Mm-hmm. And um, but the the the, the uh, music from the Caribbean is it's in they, our blood. They have they have they, <laughs> they have a way of taking a difficult situation and turning it into a beautiful experience. Yeah, and it's we, the it's the African. We like that. Diaspora. I mean, they. Um, it's it's a uh, it's it's a wonderful thing that that you know you find all over Africa. Fela Ransom Kuti was doing it, and his son is continuing in that tradition, which is to take a terrible thing and turn it into a positive thing. And you know, you fi- we found it then again happening with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five when they released the message, which was you know about the horrors of of you know, urban poverty, and yet turning it into such a great, um, you know, groove and beat that just uplifted everyone. And you still see it today with, with the the hip hop culture before gangsta came into the scene, when it wasn't all about the MCs, the rappers. It was about the, the the dancers who continue today to just blow your mind with amazing, beautiful dance on the street, and uh, that that's still part of. Um, what inspires us mm-hmm. musically is the dance, the visual, because we're very visual too, and um, so so that is a that is a well. Of course, the graffiti was there, but I don't think the graffiti had much influence on us. I mean, we we went to art school, and there are great graffiti artists, but there you know there's so much that's not good that um, <laughs> is distracting. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, before about, you know, uh, how a lot of this music would turn something um, bad into something positive. That's what you guys were doing, at least on your own small scale, when you recorded the music that came to be on live at the clubhouse, right, Um, after September 11th. I read a little bit about that. Well, that's right. And we had this an amazing crack band and um, been working with for some time and refining it and... And we just thought, you know, we always do all these things, just Chris and I in the studio with one or two people who come and do an overdub, you know, heroes of ours. But, but, we, but we weren't really including everybody in, in the way that we did on this live album. And we thought, oh, it's high time. We, this, it'll, we'll never do a studio album that sounds the same as what we do live. So let's, um, let's get this now while it's gelling and, you know, and... And that was a very positive thing at a, to be creative at a time when everybody else was just sort, sort of throwing in the towel, canceling tours, 
um, and saying it was unsafe to travel, which of course that was not true. That was just you know part of the fear mongering, which was exactly what the terrorists wanted us right. to do. Um, and and so it just seemed like a, a, um, a wonderful way to, you know, pursue what we would have done anyway. Do you feel that releasing this record now is relevant or necessary to what's going on today? Yes, because that has not left. The, the, the spirit of America is still, you know, so bruised. I mean, the, the rest of the world has picked up where it left off. In fact, they never really you know, kind of tripped over it because they've had, they've been living with terrorism and bomb threats for, for you know, decades and decades and, you know, huge crises and when they went through World War One and Two, and, you know, similarly in Asia. So um, we, we, you know, America's still, you know, a very young country and they have to... I think you know we're po- we we have sort of one foot in Europe and one foot over here, mm-hmm. and um, we're kind of international in in our, in our souls. In and um, we encourage people to to think that to to travel and see that how much more we have in common with others around the world than we have different. And um, so, yes, of course, especially this re-release, is the times have not changed very much. You know, our government today is, is still kind of stuck in, you know, Congress is still stuck in the mode that it put itself in. And um, all the constraints that they, that were created by entering an unpopular war, um, you know, it's, it's, we're not political ourselves. We try to just let people think what they want about things. Um, you seem more spiritual. And I don't mean like spiritual, like religious. I mean like right. concerned with like how to be <laughs> yes. okay. Because you, you have this one life and it's incredibly precious. And um, it's very, very short. And, you know, relatively speaking. And, you you know... You shouldn't. You shouldn't waste it on. You know, um, there there are many many ways to make a contribution, and it doesn't mean that you have to be um, a politician to get things done. You can. You can be. Uh, I think really it all starts at the community level within the family. Mm-hmm. Now you said. I mean, uh, you know, there's something that you can do, then you don't have to be a politician. Um, you were mentioning before, like what the obligation of the artist is to struggle and suffer in, in one way or another. But how has that been like a nourishing experience that Well well you know when when I think we've been supported, thank goodness, by our families to, to be artists all our lives. I think they saw that that was where we were headed from the beginning. And it but we've you know, there have been stumbling blocks along the way and it's a very money-driven society, and uh, and it tends to, you know, sort of taint just about everything you touch in this in this country and um, in the world even. So uh, we keep trying to remind ourselves that art is a lifestyle. That it's no, you know, you it's how you live your life. Whether it's making a fantastic meal that this family sits down around the table to to enjoy together, 
or create, you know, the homemaker who makes a wonderful home environment, that, that it's, all, it's all part of that. And I remember when you were just, what you were just saying there about surviving, it was thanks to Perry Farrell, at a moment in my life when I was going through huge um, sadnesses that were pulling me down, um, Perry Farrell c- called at that moment and, and uh, we had a conversation. He said, well, you know, are you crazy? You're going you're gonna, to... I was saying, well, maybe I've, I've got to find another career. Maybe, maybe I should become a teacher, you know, help young people do something positive because maybe, maybe this is just a, you know, being a musician is maybe just a vanity thing. And he said, are you kidding? He said, you're an artist and you have an obligation to yourself to survive as an artist. And I said, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. You've, um, you've said before that a life can be saved by funky music mm-hmm. and you have a song about punk girls being funky. Mm-hmm. Is funkiness... Um, like uh, sort of the answer to to the mystery of, of life and what is what is it what is it to be funky? <laughs> Where is that funk anyway? Is it under the chair? <laughs> Where is the funk? Uh, the, the, we're not talking about the smell funk. <laughs> we're talking about the, the sort of uh, well, we're talking about the, the sort of all encompassing thing which makes you want to. Shake your tail feathers, and um, it's a joie de vivre mm. attitude. Yes, it's a joie de vivre. And the punk thing comes in too because there's a wonderful thing about the punk attitude, which is just don't care so much what other people think. You know, you don't have to be part of a you know, you're part of a uh, of some gang or some clan. You know, to to elevate your ego, and your ego really is. One of the things we've been learning as we mature is that your ego is just there to keep you from walking over the edge of a cliff, you know, know where mm-hmm. the edge lies and not to walk over it and to protect yourself that way. But but not to have it be who you are, but allow other things to come through to the surface, you know, that are that are inside, inside the heart and inside the, you know, the ideas that you have that are that might not ever burst forward if you don't if you're always constrained by a conformism mm. so we're we're really out there i mean we don't really fall into sort of any one school i mean when people first ask us what's your music you know we just said oh it's fresh <laughs> and it became like oh fresh you know and it became like meaning something and uh we would say, oh, it's freestyle, and then freestyle started to mean something, but it's, we still don't fall into a, um, a nice, neat category. But that's, that's okay, too. You know, we're, we're trying to do our own thing. What's your favorite word to pronounce? Whoa. My favorite word to pronounce. And yours, too. Oh. Mine, uh, mine, I think, is effervescent. <laughs> I don't have one. Um, <laughs> there, there are a lot of good ones. Um, squirrel. <laughs> you know, it's, you try to get a French person to say squirrel. <laughs> it's as hard as to get an American to say the, the same word in French, écureuil. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> and you ask a French person to say squirrel, they're going, squirrel. You know, it's very funny. 
But um, I think words are um, are great. They have beautiful sounds, and and in English particularly, we have so many gorgeous words. I mean, Italian is the is the operatic um, language because it's all on vowels. You know, clear vowels a o, you know e, you know. But in in English, we have all these sort of guttural. Um, uh. e- e- yeah, I mean, James Brown did it really well. And um, we have all of these really, really weird things that come from the Angles and the Saxons and the Teutons and the, you know, and the Normans come in there too. And be, so it's all, it's all mixed up. But I, I love the English language because there are so many words for the same, you know, that are just... N- slightly different, just a little bit nuanced. We borrow a lot from other languages, but we change a lot, too, to, for our own convenience. And it's just such a great language. So I don't have any, hmm, what are my favorite words? Well, I like, um, I like the crispness of palm leaves, you know, in the wind. Um, that's sort of like my first sound from mm-hmm. from when I was born. I remember, I was born in Coronado and on, on an island. I remember the windows being open and the um, when you just, were born, you remember that? <laughs> well, I don't remember when I was born, but that just seems yeah. to be part of my... I mean, In your youth. In, well, I remember back to, uh, to when my, my sister was born, which was... Um, I, had just, I remember my second birthday, and I remember making a decision to, make, to be an artist at age two. I remember... I, I do this sometimes. I'll just mark a memory, make a little landscape in my memory, and say... And that one was the first one I, that I remember, which was I said, my name is Tina, I'm two years old, and I'm going to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And I just made that decision. I agree um, with you. Yeah, one does these things. Yeah, you can totally trace things. I'm still waiting to become Olivia Newton-John, though. <laughs> oh, she's great. <laughs> yeah. All right, I think that's enough. I think we got good stuff. I don't know how to great. stop this thing. In Conversation was produced by DubLab, a nonprofit radio station broadcasting live from Los Angeles since 1999. Sound editing and theme song by Matea Bame. For more programming, visit dublab.com. And thank you for listening.